Let's bow our heads for a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we give you thanks and praise tonight that you are faithful in every situation, every circumstance, every difficulty, every trial, every pain, every up, every down. And we thank you, Lord, tonight that you know exactly what you're doing with each of our lives. There's not one hair on our head that is moved to the right or the left that you do not know. There's not one sparrow that's fallen to the ground today anywhere in the world that you did not know. And every day of our life is recorded in your book before it ever came to be. You know what's on our tongue before we say it. You're both in front of us and behind us and inside of us. And we thank you, God, tonight for the incredible encouragement of your presence and your love. It's all undeserved. Father, we ask you tonight, we come to you hungry for you, eager for you, longing for you to speak to us, to touch us, to change us, to mold us, to have your way with us. And we pray tonight that that would be the case. We did not come here tonight, Lord, to be entertained. We came here tonight to be touched by God. To have you speak to our lives. To have you speak into our soul. And to leave this place tonight different than when we came. We ask you to illuminate our hearts and illuminate our minds and show us something fresh and something new and something wonderful from your word. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. A couple of weeks ago, I, I sent around a sheet, if you're on our email, then I, you received the, uh, the little paragraph that I wrote about this series. But for those of you who didn't and for those of you that haven't read it recently, I just want to read it to you, comment on it for just a moment. The title of this series is The Revolutionary Life. A revolutionary is an advocate or adherent of revolutionary doctrines. All around us today, we are immersed in a culture that is marching to the beat of the same drum. Their life's pursuit is all about self, self-achievement, self-fulfillment, self-gratification. They are greedy for more and care little for others. They worship at the temple of materialism and pleasure. Their time and their money are spent relentlessly pursuing the things of this world. Our culture is running full stream ahead down this treacherous path. It is a path that is littered with bored and disillusioned people and millions of ruined lives. It is a sad but true fact that many of our churches in America are filled with these same disillusioned people. And yet there is another way. There is another path. The beat of a different drum. It is the revolutionary life, the road less traveled. This is the road the greatest man in history traveled. It is the life abandoned to God. It is a life based on the revolutionary teachings of Jesus Christ. It is a different life, a life hungry for deep spiritual reality, a revolutionary life, a life surrendered to God. You know, I look out on the world and you probably look out on the world around you if you're an observer of life, which you probably are, whether you want to be or not. There are really only two ways to live in the world you and I live. We either live a life that is dictated to us by the principles of this world, by the values of this world. There may be different shades of humanity, different shades of belief. But nonetheless, the majority of men and women on this planet are simply marching to the beat of the same drum. They live for themselves. They live to gratify self-desires. They live, particularly in our culture, but as I have traveled in other cultures in the world, it is much the same. 
They live and worship in the temple of pleasure, the temple of materialism, the temple of greed, the temple of I want more. I want my piece of the pie. And quite honestly, most of the people I observe around me care little for others. Jesus gave us the golden rule. Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. He gave us the royal law. Love your neighbor as yourself. And yet, if you look at the average home in America, you look at the average friendship in America, you know, people do not live by those principles. They simply live, the world is centered around them, and it's a me-first culture. But there is another path. And there are only two paths. There's the path of this life, the path of what we would call in the Scripture, the flesh, the baser nature, the path of evil. You know, it's interesting, Jesus' perspective on the world. He said to those he was preaching to, save yourself from this wicked and perverse generation. That's how God sees the world. If I can be very blunt with you this evening, he sees the world in those terms. It is a wicked, evil, perverted generation. It is a world that's bent on evil, bent on sin, bent on carnal gratification. And there's another road. And that's the road that Christ offers to us. That's the road that Christ traveled. Of course, the Bible tells us that narrow is the road that leads to God and few are on it. Broad is the road that leads to destruction and many are on it. You and I, we get to make the choice. It's not an easy choice. I'll be the first to admit that to you tonight. It's not an easy choice because the bottom line is we like to be part of the crowd. We don't want to stand out. We don't want to be ridiculed. We don't want to be rejected. We don't want to be laughed at. We want to fit in. But if you look at the people in the world around us that fit in, you see that by and large their lives are empty. And they're disillusioned and they're unhappy and the things they long for are not being realized. Their relationships are a mess. Because God designed relationships to work based on, only based on, the revolutionary teachings of Jesus Christ. A relationship cannot work without radical forgiveness. A relationship cannot work that's based on you first. That's why people's relationships do not work. Christ offers us another way. The question you want to ask yourself this evening is how badly do you want this life? How badly do you want the revolutionary life that God offers us? And what are you willing to pay to get it? I'd like to read to you again from this little book that I was reading to you last week. Just a couple more pages. Anyone who claims to be a follower of Jesus Christ should be experiencing the reality of 1 John 2 and verse 6. He that says he abides in Christ ought to himself also walk even as Christ walked. Without question. It is God's will for the Christian disciple to live as Christ lived. This is not dry theory or a casual observation about Christian living. It is the dynamic standard which produces a vital witness for Christ to a lost and broken world around us. Sometimes the men of the world are wiser in human affairs than the men of God. The agnostic H.G. Wells said in his outline of history, not long after Jesus Christ died, those who claimed to follow him gave up practicing his revolutionary principles. Yes, revolutionary was his description and how right he was. The church has held on to structures and many of the doctrines, but it has lost the core of truth that Jesus taught. Today you can meet more and more talk Christians as distinct from walk Christians. 
As I have visited Bible school after Bible school and Christian institution after Christian institution, I have found many talkers of Christianity, but few walkers. Not only I, but many Christian young people are acutely aware of this discrepancy. Many have been disillusioned by this contradiction between faith and life. If you are informed, you realize that many young people who grow up in evangelical Christian churches deny the faith before they are 25. Let me just give you a statistic that this man could not have known of because this book was written 40 some years ago. Today in America, 77 percent, or that's almost eight out of every 10 young men and women, 80 percent of men and women who grow up in church, in a Christian church in America, especially those that claim to be evangelical and preach the good news of Jesus Christ, walk away from the church by the time they're 18. They walk away from Christ and they never come back. There's a tragedy, a massive discrepancy between what we say we believe and what we see being lived. We wonder why. And some say it must be the last days. The days of apostasy and doom. There may be some truth to that. But that would not be sufficient explanation for our tragic losses to Satan. Some Christians say the answer is in good, sound Bible teaching. But that is not enough either. Never in the history of the church... Have there been so many Bible conferences, radio Bible studies, and Bible study books? Did you know there are presently more than a thousand different books available in the English language just on the epistles of Paul? And today we have excellent recorded Bible studies as well. You can hear outstanding Bible teachers in your home by changing radio stations or television stations. We have every opportunity for learning of the life and teachings of Paul. But where are the Pauls of the 20th century? Where are the men prepared like him and his companions to face cold and shipwreck and robbers for the gospel of Jesus Christ and to thank God for the stripes that tear their backs? We have many sincere servants of God. Many great Bible teachers, but where are those who can say with Paul that he ceased not to warn men and women night and day with tears? Such men are difficult to find, if not impossible. Why? The reason, I believe, is that we have separated our Bible beliefs from our daily lives. Paul never did this. We want to serve the Lord. And we say, I'm ready to serve the Lord. If only I can find my place in his service. Not finding it, we're frustrated. What is wrong? God is far more concerned about you finding your place in Christ himself than your place in his service. The essential thing in Christian living is not where you're going or what you're doing, but in whose strength you are living. You may go behind the Iron Curtain or just across the street to serve Christ, but in whose strength are you going? Let us see how the Apostle Paul went about it. In Acts 20, 19, we read of him serving the Lord with all humility of mind and with many tears and trials which befell me. I kept back nothing that was profitable to you, but I have showed you and have taught you publicly and from house to house. Notice the words with all humility of mind. The apostle does not say he is serving the Lord with great preaching, literature distribution, tremendous campaigns behind the Iron Curtain, and great exploits in Turkey and India. He says that he served the Lord with many tears and trials. Discipleship is, first of all, a matter of the heart. Unless the heart is right, everything else is wrong. Our hearts need to experience a deep hunger and longing for God. Hunger for God is the genuine mark of the true revolutionary disciple of Jesus Christ. It confirms to me that I am his child, that he's working in me. What I do for God does not prove I'm his disciple. I may try to fulfill the terms of the Sermon of the Mount or church creeds. I may live ruggedly and sleep on the floor. But these things do not mark me as a disciple. The way I may know that I am a disciple is my having an intense, insatiable hunger for the crucified Lord of glory. 
If this is your experience, if you yearn for deep fellowship with your creator, if you desire to know him intimately and to walk with him and breathe with him, though you may look like a failure and have made immeasurable blunders, then you are well on the road to revolutionary discipleship. The first requirement of Jesus. Tonight, we're going to talk about the requirements of the revolutionary life. Jesus's revolutionary requirements. The first is an insatiable, deliberate hunger for God. In Psalm 42, the psalmist writes, As a deer pants for streams of water, so I long for you, O God. I thirst for God, the living God. Where can I come and stand before him? David writes in Psalm 63, O God, you are my God. I earnestly search for you. My soul thirsts for you. My whole body longs for you in this parched and weary land where there is no water. I have seen you in the sanctuary. I have gazed on your power and glory. Your unfailing love is better to me than life. Now, I want to talk about this for a moment because I think there's a big misconception about what I'm going to say. A lot of people, what they're waiting for is this overwhelming uncontrollable outside emotion to come over them. And all of a sudden they wake up one day with just this insatiable desire for God. That's not how it works. As a young man, I deliberately fed an insatiable desire for women. I dreamed about them. I put them in my mind. I fantasized about them. I wrote songs about them until it was an all-consuming passion of my life. It didn't just one day overcome me. I fed it. I made choices in my life. Same is true in music. It didn't just one day overwhelm me. I developed an interest and I fed that interest Till it was an insatiable desire. The same is true with God. A hunger for God is something you choose. You deliberately choose to pant after God. I want to know God and I will not be satisfied with anything less than an authentic walk with God. And I don't care what it costs me. That and that alone separates the men from the boys and the women from the girls. That and that alone separates those who will succeed in that revolutionary life and those who are simply pretenders. You want to know him. You know, so many Christians, they try Bible reading. You know, they try the Christian thing. I'll develop my devotional life and I'll develop my prayer life. But that's, that's not what it's about. Those are simply routines that are developed because you have an insatiable hunger to know God. To know God. The living God. The incredible God. The creator of all. The God who's involved in this world and in your life who loves you and wants to do something significant. And powerful and profound in your life. I see people today. And so do you. They have an insatiable desire. For video games. They have an insatiable desire. For the latest fashion. They have an insatiable desire. For the latest furniture. They have an insatiable desire. To be cool. They have an insatiable desire for whatever new techno-gizmo comes out. They have an insatiable desire for sports. You know how you get an insatiable desire? By feeding it. It's like an addiction. No addiction starts out like, oh, you got to have it. It's, it didn't start like that. It, you know, it starts a little, you know, a little tepidly. Like, oh, maybe I'll try that beer. Maybe I'll try that drug. And then, and then and it grows and it, you feed it and you feed it and you want it and you want it and you feed it and you feed it and you feed it. 
You have to ask yourself the question tonight. I'm going to, by the grace of God, force you to ask yourself the question. Do you really hunger for God? Are you looking for the latest Christian gizmo? You know, some new book you can find on the shelf that'll like trip your trigger. God will trip your trigger if you just take the time to get to know him. Are you running after him with your time, <clears throat> with your thoughts? So I made a choice 30 years ago in my life. Now, what I used to feed on and what I used to be hungry for, I'm not I started feeding new things in my life. I'm not saying I don't ever have temptation. I'm not saying that. I'm just saying that I've, I've continually, continually upped my game and upped my game and gone after God and gone after God and gone after God. Because nothing satisfies my soul but God. Marriage did not satisfy my soul. Sex did not satisfy my soul. Only God can satisfy the deepest longings and desires that you have in your life. And you're going to have to decide, do I want him? Do I, wa I want him? I want him. I made that choice. That's settled for me. I want him. Now what I fight, the only thing I fight is the pull of the flesh to be lazy. The pull of the flesh that says, oh, Mark, you know, you, you've had enough of God. You, you, you've got enough power. I don't have enough power. You know how much I pray for power. You know how often I go out and pray, oh, God, anoint my life. Pour yourself out of my life. Reveal yourself to me. I want more of you. And so he brings trials. And difficulty and heartache and pain. And he reveals himself to me through those things. But there are some other requirements that I want to look at with you tonight. The first is a hunger for God, but the next are very similar to it. Only it's the practical outworking of what that looks like. And the first passage I'd like to read to you is from the book of Luke. These are the messages of Jesus himself. If you have a red letter edition Bible, then you can find them by just reading the red. These are the things Jesus said while he was here. These are things that, to be very honest with you, a lot of Christians never talk about. You may not have ever even heard them read publicly before. Or preached or taught about before. Because they are so radical. But we're going to read them tonight together. In Luke chapter 9, verse 57. As Jesus was walking along with his disciples and the crowd, someone said to Jesus, Lord, I will follow you no matter where you go. But Jesus replied, really, foxes have dens to live in, birds have nests, but I, the Son of Man, have no permanent place to lay my head. I have no permanent home of my own. Are you ready for that life? He said to another disciple, he said to another person, Jesus did, come and be my disciple. The man agreed. He said, oh, I will, Lord. But, but he said, Lord, first let me return home and bury my father. Jesus said, let those who are spiritually dead care for their own dead. Your duty is to go and preach the coming of the kingdom of God. Come and follow me. Another said, yes, Lord, I will follow you, but first let me say goodbye to my family. And Jesus said, anyone who puts his hand to the plow and then looks back is not fit for the kingdom of God. You know, it's really interesting in this passage, if you read it carefully and then you get a pencil out and underline it. It's this phrase, Lord, me first. There's those three words there. Lord, me first. You cannot have a revolutionary life with that mentality. You cannot have a revolutionary life with that mentality. Now, you know, you can look at this passage and, uh, you know, I've had people come up to me before over the years. I've been doing this a long time. And from time to time, they go, you know, Mark, that was really insensitive. 
Or Mark, you know, you said this and this. I think that was really too extreme. I read this passage. I wonder what you'd say to Jesus. Whoa, wait a minute, Jesus. Whoa, wait a minute. All the man wants to do is go bury his father. I think you're being highly insensitive, Jesus, to this man who is grieving when you say to him, you let the spiritually dead bury the dead. You come and follow me. Well, that's what Jesus said. And then you got this other guy. He, he Lord says, follow me. And he says, well, Lord, first, but OK, but let me go back and say goodbye to my family. And Jesus says, anyone who looks back on those familiar relationships. Kind of like, oh, I, I want to go back there. You're not you're not fit for the kingdom of God. You're not fit for the kingdom of God. You know what it says in one of these passages, the sister passage to this? It says, remember Lot's wife. I'll tell you real quickly the story of Lot. Lot lived in this very, very evil place full of idolaters and murderers. It was called Sodom and Gomorrah. There's a lot of other kind of people there. But the Bible tells us that was the primary reason the Lord destroyed it because of their idolatry. And Lot, he was a righteous man. He was a God follower in this town. And so God came to him and he said, Lot, you need to get out of this town because I've judged this town. I'm going to destroy this town. Get out of this town. He said, Lot, when you leave tomorrow, do not look back under no circumstances. Do not look back. Don't let your wife look back. Now. Imagine that for just a moment. The Lord just comes to you out of the blue. You built a life here. I mean, I know it's a bad place. A lot of wickedness going on. But Lord, this is our life. And wives, you know, this is my nest, Lord. This I'm raising my babies here, Lord. The pictures are on the wall. Get out of town. And don't look back. So Lot gets up and he begins walking. And while they're walking over the top of them, they can see the glow of the destruction of God because the Bible says that he rained down fire and brimstone and destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. And it has never been rebuilt historically. But Lot's wife, she couldn't take it and she was sad and she looked back. The moment she looked back, the Bible says she was turned to a pillar of salt right in the spot. You know what Lot did? You have to understand what Lot did, don't you? Lot didn't touch his wife. Lot kept going. Why? Why? Now listen really carefully to this. Did Lot not love his wife? It broke his heart, but he loved God more. And God had given him a command, and his command was, Do not look back, Lot. And this leads us to the next passage. Matthew chapter 10. Matthew chapter 10 and verse 34. This, this passage will blow your mind. Especially when I quoted the song last week, Imagine, by John Lennon. Don't imagine that I came to bring peace to the earth. Said so he writes songs about it. Imagine we all get along. Don't imagine that. I did not come to bring peace to the earth. I came to bring a sword. I have come to set a man against his father and a daughter against her mother and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. Your enemies will be right in your own household. If you love your father or mother more than you love me, you are not worthy of being mine. And if you love your son or daughter more than me, you are not worthy of being mine. And if you refuse to take up your cross and follow me, you are not worthy of being mine. If you cling to your life, you will lose it. But if you give it up for me, you will find it. Before I comment on that, I want to read to you the parallel passage in the book of Luke. Because it sheds even a little more light in Luke chapter 12 and verse 49. I have come to bring fire on the earth, and I wish that my tasks were already completed. 
There is a terrible baptism ahead for me, and I am under a heavy burden until it is accomplished. Do you think I have come to bring peace on the earth? No, I have come to bring strife and division. From now on, families will be split apart, three in favor of me and two against me, or the other way around. There will be division between father and son, mother and daughter, mother-in-law and daughter-in-law. Have you ever read these passages before? Have you ever read, have you ever wrestled, what is Jesus saying? What is this man of peace and love saying to us? He's trying to create a war? That he wants bloodshed? No. There's already a war. There's already a war. He came to destroy Satan's kingdom. All that you see going on around us today in this world is part of the kingdom of darkness. Very much like the Star Wars myth. Only this is real. There is a dark lord. His name is Lucifer, Satan, Diablos, Beelzebub. And he's alive. And he's well. And there's a demon force in the world. And all the values of this world and this culture are being swept along at his dictates. Christ came to divide that kingdom. This earth isn't going to last. He's going to destroy this earth in the end. In the meantime, he's come to cause division and strife in the devil's kingdom by hiving off people, hiving them off and saving them. And all of a sudden, you see, he did that with me. All of a sudden, Jesus was me and Kathy's allegiance and her family. They did not like that. In fact, it was more than like they hated my guts. They did everything they possibly could do to destroy our reputation. Because mother was set against daughter and father against daughter. Because my wife, before we were married, chose her loyalty to Christ. And that's our second lesson. Second requirement. Or the third Actually, hunger for God. We can't live by me first. It must be Christ first. Christ first. Secondly, is supreme loyalty to Christ. He's who we're loyal to first. He is who gets our first loyalty. I don't misunderstand the text. Because Jesus tells us, blessed are the peacemakers. We are to... As much as it remains up to us, be at peace with people. What Jesus is saying is, I've come to bring spiritual division. Spiritual division. There will be those who join me and embrace me and love me. And there will be those who reject me. And based on that, there will be strong division between the two groups. Now, this is important. The group that rejects Christ and us... They may fight with swords. They may strike us down. They may smite us. We, on the other hand, live to die. We don't fight back that way, you see. We turn the other cheek. We seek to win others who hate us. We pray for those who persecute us. We bless those who hurt us. And we do good to those who try to bring us harm. And that's the difference. But do not be in any way misinformed or deceived. Christ did not come to bring one wonderful brotherhood of man. That won't happen. That won't happen. The majority of this world will not embrace Christ. They're doomed. Our goal, our job, is to win as many of them as we can. This planet is doomed. The new one that we live on, the new heavens, the new earth is not doomed. And there will be, just as John Lennon said, partially said, a complete and total brotherhood of righteous men and women who will never die and never be sick 
and never have sorrow. And it's coming. This isn't it. You want the revolutionary life, then you're going to have to live worthy of it. You're going to have to choose supreme loyalty to Christ over all familiar relationships. And that leads us to the next. And the next verse is very similar in Luke chapter 14. Another very <clears throat> profound passage. Great crowds. Now think about this. Great crowds were following Jesus. That would mean usually when the Bible says great numbering in the tens of thousands. <clears throat> Jesus turned around and he said to the crowd. Because see, they were following him. So he turned to them. He said, look, if you want to follow me, you must love me more than your own father, mother, wife, children, brothers, husband, sister. Yes, even more than your own life. Otherwise, you cannot be following me. You cannot be my disciple if you do not carry your own cross and follow me. But don't begin until you count the cost. Listen really carefully to this tonight, young person. Don't begin following until you've counted the cost. What it's going to cost you is going to cost you. For who would begin constructing a building without first getting estimates and then checking to see if there's enough money to pay the bill? Otherwise, you might complete only the foundation before running out of funds and then everyone will laugh at you. They will say, that's the person who started the building and then ran out of money before it was finished. I know so many people like this. I had so many friends like this, Christians. Oh, they were shooting off their mouth. Oh, mom and dad, I'm going to follow Christ. Oh, my friends, I'm going to follow Christ. Five years later, they're living the same trashy life, the kind of life, that laughing stock of their friends because they didn't really count the cost. I've been doing this 30 years. And I'm going to do it 30 more. I'm finishing the building. Or what king would even dream of going to war without first sitting down with his counselors and discussing whether his army of 10,000 is strong enough to defeat the 20,000 soldiers who are marching against him? If he's not able, then while the enemy is still far away, he'll send a delegation to discuss terms of peace. So no one can become my follower without giving up everything for me. Oh, my gosh. Now, wait a minute. Jesus, wait a minute. you're asking an awful lot. Really? Did you forget that Jesus is God? Did you forget the first commandment? And you should love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. Everything. If he didn't have everything, he didn't have anything. If he does not have everything from you, he doesn't have anything. If he does not have all of you, your heart, your time, your talents, your resources, there he is, your life, your marriage, your future, he doesn't have anything. The cross that we bear is the cross of self-denial. It's the cross of the approval of the world. Listen, I've endured, and some of you have as well, a lot of rejection for my faith. I'm not doing this to be popular with the world. I'm doing this to honor the Savior who loved me and to win His well-done, good and faithful servant. And you have to ask yourself, you know, one version says, it says it this way. He who comes after me must hate his father, mother, brother or sister. Yes, even his own life or he cannot be my disciple. Now, a lot of people have been confused. Like, why would you say hate? We're not supposed to hate our father, mother, but we're supposed to honor our father, mother. Yes. Here's what Jesus was saying. And in the Greek Bible, they have they have ways of saying things that were limited in the English language. Jesus was saying your love for me must be so much greater by comparison than your love for mommy, daddy, husband, wife, or children that by comparison, it would seem like hate. It's not really hate, but if you compared it, it's so much greater. Like, you know, someone might say, I really, 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 really love pizza. But when it comes right down to it, do you really love your wife more, or your girlfriend more? Well, you know, yeah. Okay, if I gotta let the pizza go, I'll let it go. Or, or let's say, you know, let's say you get a bad heart and you've been smoking. Now, you love your cigarettes, but the doctor looks you in the eye and says, "Look, this is the bottom line is this: you do this for one more year, and you'll be dead. You'll be a vegetable. I'll have you on tubes, and then you'll die." 
Right, we'll find out. Do you really love your life more than your cigarettes? Chances are you find a way to quit. When Jesus says, give up everything for me, he means that everything else in our life is all expendable. It's all expendable. And so we must love Christ above all other human relationships, even our own self, our own life. And the fifth one is found in Mark chapter 8. Again, similar, but a little different angle. Then he called his disciples and the crowds to come over and listen. If any of you wants to be my follower, he told them, by the way, this is not exactly the way to get a lot of followers, is it? <laughs> so he calls the crowds over. He says, okay, okay, come on over now. If you want to be my follower, you must put aside your selfish ambition, shoulder your cross, and follow me. If you try to keep your life for yourself, you'll lose it. But if you give up your life for my sake, for the sake of the good news, you'll find true life. How do you benefit if you gain the whole world but lose your own soul in the process? Is anything worth more than your own soul? And I want to talk with you about that for a moment. If you want to be my follower, you must set aside your ambition for self. Your desire for power, your desire for self-fulfillment, your desire for you, your desire for fame, your desire for whatever it is. That you know you've been pursuing in your life. And you set it aside. And in its place you put a hunger for God. <clears throat> when I was a young man, I had uh, two extremely strong desires. Um, and, and, and I dreamed about them a lot. I thought about them a lot. I was preparing for them a lot. The first was a music dream. I won't get into all of it, but I, but I had a dream, and I, and I was pursuing that dream. And, and, and I dreamed of fame, not the American Idol type, but a different artist type of fame. I dreamed that people would pay attention to what I had to sing, and that I could make a living doing it, writing, singing, playing. I think, honestly... Had I pursued that the last 30 years of my life, I might be considerably better at it than I was when I was 19. Maybe I might even be able to make somewhat of a living today doing it somewhere. My second dream, and it was just as big, I had lots of books all about it, was living in the mountains. Yep. Living in a cabin with stone fireplace away from the despicable human beings that I couldn't stand, away from the rat race of life, basically self-sufficient and self-sustaining. And they were huge passions. They may seem like, oh, those are the tackiest things I've ever heard. That's okay. Yours might be tacky too. But those were mine. And when I came face to face with the living Christ... And when I thought about the claims of Jesus Christ, and when I thought about the fact that if I pursue those two things with reckless abandon, which was what I was planning on doing, I might gain what I consider a wonderful world. I might live on my little mountain. See, back then, I think there's still places like this, but back then when I was thinking of this, there was still places in the United States you could homestead land. In other words, you could go to Montana or Idaho. I don't know if you know this, but, but Montana, I think it's Montana or Idaho. It's bigger than the whole state of California. There's a million people there. There are 20 million in L.A. alone. And Montana's my kind of place, to be very frank with you. I'm not there. I'm here because I'm carrying my cross, loving the human race. But, but I could have gone and had some free land. And, and homesteading meant you improved the land. You built something on it. And I could have had my little cabin. And I could have done my fishing. And I could have done my 
whatever and and done my music and lived my artist's life. And wow, maybe, just maybe, if I worked hard enough, I might have a little bit of the world at my fingertips. The question Jesus is asking you is, don't you understand that you may gain all that, but lose your life? You lose. You don't gain. You lose. When you gain in this life, you lose in the next. When you gain in this life, you lose the value of your life to God. And I made a decision. And I'm, I'm not exaggerating. You may think I'm, exa- I'm not exaggerating. I made a decision. I walked away from those pursuits. I walked away from wanting everybody to like me. I walked away from wanting to get away from people. I walked away and I embraced the life God had for me in this book. And I picked up my cross. It's still on my back. And you know what? Everything Jesus said he'd do, he did. Every single thing Jesus said he would do, he's done. He provided for me. He's provided for my family. He gave me real life. And I genuinely would not trade the last 30 years of my life for all that I originally thought I wanted. I wouldn't trade it. Do you know in heaven, I told you this before you can get the series, it's called heaven. In heaven, I'm going to have all that anyway. I'm going to be able to play the instrument I love most. I'm going to be able to play it a million times better than I do now. I'm going to be able to sing and write a billion times better than now. I'm going to have all the time to do it. And I'm going to live in a gorgeous place. And I'll have you over sometime. But in the meantime... In the meantime, the call of God on our life is a call to a revolutionary life. The call of God on our life is to turn our back on the things that all of our relatives are living for. And all of our friends seem to be pursuing and instead live a simple, devoted, passionate life for Jesus Christ. I like it about your heads with me this evening. We're going to close And next week we'll get into some of the revolutionary messages of Jesus Christ. I just want to ask you tonight with your head bowed and and, and your eyes closed. And, you know, I'm not going to do anything here like, you know, weird or anything. I, I just want you to ask yourself honestly, who are you really living for? And what are you really living for? And, and you may be here tonight and you may genuinely be a Christian. By a Christian, I mean you may be someone who's recognized I'm a sinner. Christ died for my sin and I embrace Christ as my Savior. I've asked him to forgive my sin and I know he lives in me now. But you still may not be a revolutionary. That does not make you a disciple, a follower, a person who's counted the cost And then said, after counting the cost, Lord, I'm going to lay aside my desires for self and I am going to live my life for you. There are some countries in the world. America didn't happen to be one of them, but but sometimes it happens. I remember when Kathy first decided, Kathy's my wife, first decided to follow Christ. She was 19. She was a cross country runner. She was in love with a very good-looking guy who came from a lot of money. Her parents were very proud of her. Kathy had all the, almost all of the women's records at Des Moines Hoover in 1975. She went off to college and she was going out with her boyfriend waiting for him to propose. And One day, she was just out on a run. And my wife was the kind of person that could run and talk and pray at the same time. She had those kind of lungs. And it just dawned on her that her life wasn't mattering for anything, that running was really her God and Shane was really her God. And that that night she gave her life fully, completely, completely to Christ. She wanted the abundant life. She already knew the Lord, but she was not radically following the Lord. She was living a very compromised life. 
Oh, she began attending these radical Bible studies with these revolutionary Christians who are crazy about God, in love with God. And that wasn't too bad. That was okay. But when she wrote home and told her parents how she got baptized one cold November day and they broke the ice for her baptism, her parents went through the roof because then they realized this was serious. Now our daughter is in a cult. I met her right around that time, and now we were both in a cult. But you know, Kathy and I did not let that bother us. We kept loving Christ. We kept loving each other. About two and a half years later, we got married. Her parents refused to come to the wedding. After we waited and waited and waited, they simply refused to come. Then we had babies, and they really didn't care a whole lot. We just kept living for Christ. And almost 20 years later, her father broke, came to Christ at 63 and got baptized in the same kind of a lake. At 63 years old, see, we were right. We won. We will continue to win. Even the world hates us. What are you going to choose? I'd like you to think about that, not just tonight. I'm not going to have you to make some rush decision I want you to think about this weekend. I want you to think about it tomorrow. I want you to think about Sunday. And you can look up these verses yourself. And I want you to ask yourself, what am I going to do with the requirements of Jesus Christ? Father, we want to thank you tonight for the word of God. There is power in your word. There is power in this message. There is a life that can be had, but it will cost us everything. And my prayer tonight, Lord, actually and honestly, is not that we'd have thousands of people coming to the rock. My prayer is that we have revolutionaries developed from the rock. That we'd have men and women who make a decision to live and embrace the revolutionary life and the revolutionary teachings of Jesus Christ and who go out of this place and daily seek to live and walk the same life Christ lived in reckless surrender and abandon to the will of God. That was the life Christ lived. He did not live for his own pursuits. He did not live for his own desires. He lived for the will of God. I pray that would be our desire and our passion and our devotion and our commitment. Full surrender to God. In Jesus' name, amen.